and she gave me a paper towel with a list of the pay the, the rooms where the patients had died and she says i'm leaving this is too hard for me and she left and i found myself alone in a hundred patient building with deaths on every floor and i just didn't know like i was like what am i here to do hello podcast world welcome to episode 14 of run chats with ron runs nyc I'm so excited to share my incredible friend Sarah Bashan's story this week. Sarah's a single mom of two beautiful girls, Naomi and Gloria, and she works in the OR on the front lines of COVID-19. When a nearby nunnery had an outbreak in Sherbrooke, Quebec, Canada, she was the first to raise her hand to volunteer to work the graveyard shift and talked about how much she learned from the nuns about how they lived their lives and what that experience taught her. She also shared some profound stories about loss, of trying to help patients die with dignity, and how she's managing the stress and PTSD from it all. She runs 8K back and forth to the hospital, which is definitely helping her with her stress load, and also ensures she isn't missing spending any time with her precious girls. Sarah's fearless, lives her life to the fullest, and loves travel, adventures, and the outdoors. And I think my mouth is still open hearing about some of her stories. Trying out with 400 girls for the national handball team, how that experience shaped her. Hitchhiking across Canada. Moving to Australia, starting an autistic school. Traveling with her sister from South Africa to Kenya and contracting malaria. And losing twins and the effect that that had on her. That'd usually be the time when I tell somebody to write a book because they have so much to share with the world, but Sarah's already done that. Link in the show notes. Sarah's very close with her family, so I'm hoping her mom, older brother, twin brother, and sister will enjoy listening. She inspires many in our team, O'Leary Racing Team Group, and is someone I'm super proud to call friend. So let's dive on in and take a listen to her inspiring story. Good evening, Sarah. Welcome to Run Chats with Ron Runs NYC. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Good evening. It's so great to have you. I should have opened up with bonsoir, but I'm ash- I'm ashamed of my French accent. I know how terrible it is. So you're going to have to teach me. But français très bien, Ron. Yes, yes. We all love a good French accent. Every person listening is going to be very happy. We got to get more international on this show. We got to get the <laughs> Italianos on and and the Fran- français. And uh, we got to open up our audience, so it's all good. So how are things up in uh, Canada? How are you doing? I'm doing very good. I actually have uh, some calmer weeks. Uh, Montreal was hit pretty badly with uh, COVID, and I'm a nurse uh, that was hit pretty bad where where I work. Uh, So I've been pretty busy from March to recently, and now we're finally getting a bit of quiet time, so it's good. Yes, uh, you've done wonderful work, um, and you should be commended, all of your colleagues up there. So please tell them. You know how near and dear this uh, issue is to my heart, so I appreciate you. And I know um, you've mentioned to me, tell tell some of the Run Chats listeners some of the fun things uh, people have done for you know you and some of the groups in your hospital, and just what, what they've sent along to you to show some appreciation. Yeah, 
Well, first of all, uh, to put you in context, uh, I work in a small community hospital, so we're not a designated COVID hospital, but the area where we live was hit very, very badly, especially the elderly homes. So I work in the in the operating rooms and endoscopy, and I'm in charge of colposcopy. And when everything happened, we stopped all the elective activities, and we were asked to go in the elderly homes to, to help. And so uh, all my neighborhood, everybody that knows me, everybody was just so supportive. Uh, I'd be walking my dog with my daughters and neighbors would be giving me jams. And I got about 20 texts every day, people asking me how I'm doing. My twin brother is asking me to fake a fever so I could be home safely. And it's just all the restaurants in the neighborhood sending us food and the support was so amazing. And like everybody that walked in the streets where I live telling me that they felt so powerless. I kept telling them that when I was in a room with patients with COVID, they were all with me and everything that they do for us. It's all with us in the rooms when we're helping and when we're being coughed on and when we're helping someone die. We feel the neighbors, we feel Ron Romano running, we feel all the support that we get. And it makes the biggest difference in the world. Well, that's that's so beautiful. Um, and it's wonderful to hear. Um, you know, I know Canada was hit hard, particularly Montreal, because I've been following your area up there specifically. And I think that's one of the things people don't realize, um, how dramatic the changes are at any hospital. It doesn't matter if it's in Canada, the United States, Spain, or Italy. Elective procedures go out the window. All the normal uh, tasks and roles that people fill, doctors, nurses, anesthesiologists, whatever specialty someone had before, it goes out the window. People are pushed into triage positions, ICU positions, maybe working, you know, um, directly like you're talking about with nursing home patients. I mean, they're obviously the by far the highest at risk people. Um, so you're dealing with ventilators and you're dealing with people dying, okay, which you and I both know. Um, it's one of the reasons why I've gotten so involved in this thing. You're that last, per, you're surrogate family at that point. You are 100% fulfilling that role. And just having gone through it recently with my mom, my mom did not have COVID, but my mom's had lymphoma for nearly 30 years. And, you know, anybody coming in at this point with a high fever or anything else, they're pretty much almost going to treat you as if you have COVID, at least initially, until they get your test results back, et cetera. And it's just, you, you just have to be commended for, um, handling all that stress, handling all that trauma, because normally, you know, as a nurse or a doctor, you know, your training kicks in and you can figure out a way to help a person or help a patient. And with COVID, a lot of times, most of the things really aren't working. And if they end up on a ventilator, most times they're probably not going to come off and you end up potentially being the last face or through uh, a visor or an N95 mask, maybe that they're ever going to see. So that's a lot to take on and handle. And it makes me really happy to hear how your attitude is about it, that you're handling it so well, because it's it's really tough. It beats a lot of people up and it sounds like you're handling it really well. Yeah, I think the beginning was a lot rougher because I'm in charge of a cervical cancer clinic and I'm the only trained person in the hospital to the only nurse trained to do it. So when I was asked to go in the old elderly homes uh, it, it was stressful because I had to keep managing my emergencies, making sure my cancers weren't forgotten. And then I would go a few days in the homes. And so the, the first time I actually went to an elderly home was on Easter Sunday. And I asked my sister and my daughters if they would allow me pushing the egg hunt for another day so I could go help 
the elders. And so when I showed up to the old home in the morning on Easter morning, I thought I was being a good, strong nurse going to work. And when I rang the doorbell to go into the building, it was a hundred patient building. There was only one staff and it was a nurse from an OR from another hospital that had the same intention as me. And she was crying and she had the N95 mask and the visors and the gloves and the gown. And she was crying and she says, there's a hundred patients in here. There's 12 that died. And she gave me a paper towel with the list of the pay the rooms where the patients had died and she says I'm leaving this is too hard for me and she left and I found myself alone in a hundred patient building with beds on every floor and I just didn't know like I was like what am I here to do you know so it was a very stressful day and I was like this COVID business is just going to send us in post-traumatic stress disorder and like how am I going to be able to raise my girls and keep living after this but you know one day at a time and we manage, and I think we're getting stronger. That is an unbelievable story. Um, you know, on both ends, I mean, for her, you know, she just hit her her breaking point, um, and anybody can understand it. You know, you're writing on paper towels that twelve people are dead, and you know she's probably dealing with all that grief all by herself. You said she was the only one there, so you just hit a point, and everybody has a point. Um, I think that's one of the reasons why counseling is so important right now at the hospitals for there to be some sort of counseling available to the doctors and nurses that are dealing with this this incredible PTSD and trauma and stress level. Um, and so you are left, you know, with you know twelve bodies, and you're there on your own, and it's, and it's Easter Sunday. Take me back to what were you feeling, and how did you, you know, pull the rest of that day together? T talk about that a little bit. Uh, so the initial uh, thought was, what was I thinking, volunteering to come help in a milieu that I'm not used to, that I haven't worked with. I haven't worked with elderly clientele in 15 years. So I was wondering, well, what was I thinking? What can I offer today for, for, for work? And uh, so she left. She left me the keys to the narcotics and I was just didn't know where to go. And a coordinator walked in and he looked at me and he told me, just go on the second floor and pass the pills to the 25 patients. He warned me that they were the type of patients that like to run away a lot. So, so to keep an eye on the elevator and make sure they didn't run away. So I got to the second floor. The nurse's station was empty. It was dirty and no one was running away because COVID was in every room of that floor. Every patient, the 25 patients on my floor were sick. They hadn't eaten or drank in days. And so my job was to basically pass pills to all of the patients. They all took a lot of pills and I had to like break them and mix them with yogurt or pudding and give them to them. So as I was going to the room, sometimes I'd walk in and the patient was passed away. So then I would throw away the pills and go and prepare more pills. And I just felt like I was doing more medicine. And so at one point I met a doctor and I said, why am I passing pills to patients that are so sick and that they haven't had any care in days? What can I do that's more important than passing pills? And so then she told me, well, you know what? Help them die. Help them die peacefully. And so she wrote on a piece of paper, the patients that were most sick and had the less chance of making it through the, their sickness. And she said, just start giving them morphine and 
Bersed and also, I don't know in English, but I had to install little catheters in subcontaneous, I think it's said in English. Yes. And I had to start giving them medication to help them pass away. And it's funny, but every time that one of them would pass away during the day, I felt relieved because they looked so famished and thirsty and so lonely. And I would look at the pictures in the rooms and I would talk to the pictures and say, you know, your father's not alone. Your mom's not alone. I'm here and I'm, I'm your voice. And so it was a very tiring day. It was very traumatic, but at the same time, it was very powerful. And so I got home and I saw my boyfriend and I told him, you're going to have to listen to every minute of my day so I don't have post-traumatic shock syndrome. So he sat down and I just told him every minute of the day. And after that, I felt that I had the strength to carry on. So that's how the COVID crisis started for me. <laughs> that is unbelievable. And um, to be left there alone and not have anyone else to um, to tackle, you know, such an just unbelievable set of circumstances. And, you know, it's also Easter, it's a holy day. And, you know, you're wanting to do an Easter egg hunt with your girls or be at home and be with your family. And, you know, you're put into this uh, cauldron of emotion. Um, but thank you for um, for handling that so well for those, for those people and for those families. I'm sure um, it's just an awful thing that I think, unless someone has lost somebody in this crisis that probably is, is just lost on a lot of people that are out there, that you can't go see your wife or your husband. You can't, I couldn't go be with my mom. I tried to go see her through a window, and the nurses were so wonderful to me, and they wanted to help me in the worst way, but there's a patient privacy window, and it's got all kinds of glare reflection built in. And you know, So ironically and cruelly, my mom could see me, and I couldn't see her, because the only way I'd seen her for months was through a Zoom screen. Um, so you gave those people their last... Uh, time of dignity you know you were there as a surrogate parent for a fam the family members who aren't allowed to go there and i think that's the most uh heartbreaking part of it um you know that and then even from that point you know not having funerals not being able to gather as a family and mourn whatever your faith is like those are the moments where you know you can either try to celebrate a life or be sad or whatever emotions the family needs to go through at that point so for you to go home Good job by your boyfriend. That is wonderful because I think a lot of um, the PTSD that you're talking about that's real is because people don't want to tell their wife or their husband or their boyfriend or their girlfriend or certainly not their children because they don't want to put that sort of grief and emotional upheaval into somebody else's like world. So the people that I know like you are generally carrying that around inside and building up and that's not healthy. So good for you that you went home and decided you need to listen to this whole thing and you gave it to them because what you did in effect was you took all of it and you unloaded it. And that's a wonderful job by him because he listened, he heard you, he supported you. And then you were at that point, maybe just relieved that you had shared all that unbelievable emotion and were able to go back and and you knew that he had your back. So that's what's the most important thing. We all need somebody like that um, because unfortunately, we all don't have somebody like that. Um, some of the good nurses and doctors I know 
are by themselves or, you know, they're isolated from the rest of their family because of health reasons. And, you know, when they go home, you know, thank for, in my case, I'm isolated. So, and because other family members, immunity isn't so good. And so we're self-isolating. If it weren't for my dog to this crisis, I don't know what I would do. You got your beautiful girls at home there and, you know, you have your boyfriend close by who's supportive. So good for you. And I'm sure you and your other colleagues can kind of help each other out, right? You would know if someone was struggling, you'd reach out and just say, hey, I'm here for you. I can give you a hand, right? You'd probably try to do that stuff for each other, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's good. And I mean, your running has got to be like a lifesaver. It is. I, I, I live a very sim simple life. And I try not to have many objects and I try not to use my car. And I'm trying to set an example for the girls. And so for the last few years, I've been running everywhere I go, trying to leave the car in the driveway. So through this crisis, it's been amazing. Like even that day, that Easter day, when I came home, I told Gloria, my daughter, get on your bike, we're going for a run. And I was just trying to get the thoughts out, the smell, everything out. And I was trying to run it off. That It didn't work that day but it usually works. So I work, I run every day to and back from work and it's basically my stress relief. Well, thank God. Thank God you have that. Um, and that's wonderful um, because, you know, it, when we get in a car, car, driving a car can be stressful. You know, you get into traffic or, you know, where are you going to park and all these other things. So you're, you're taking that off the table and that's your time. Um, that's your time to try to clear your head um, listen to some music, listen to a podcast, whatever you need to do. Maybe you don't want to listen to anything at all. Maybe you just want to have white noise and just uh, be alone with your thoughts. But um, how long does it take you to run, you know, back and forth? What kind of distance are you covering when you when you make the run over? So it's eight, 8.4 kilometers. So it takes me about 40 minutes. Uh, the winters here in Montreal are really bad. So it's icy roads and snowy roads and the summer is very hot and humid. So it always depends on the weather. And I also run along the St. Lawrence River in Montreal. So the wind is very, very strong, uh, usually coming back home, western winds. So yeah, it's about 40 minutes. So it's, it's, it's a 16 kilometers a day that I run. That's great. So you're getting, you're getting good mileage in every day that yeah. you go in. So on your work days, you know, you're going to get some good mileage in for sure. And, um, you know, like obviously, uh, you know, you, if you have a workout to do or something like that, you know, hopefully that's not in a day when you need to be in, in the, in the hospital for a 12 hour shift or 14 hour shift or something like that. Cause I know that there are plenty of those days that you have to rack up, right? Absolutely. But also I, I'm raising my two girls alone and I'm so passionate about running and I didn't want my passion to be in the way of raising them. I didn't want my daughters as adults to remember that their mom was always away running. So for me, running to work and back was the best way to put my running in my schedule and not let it affect them and make sure that I can spend so much, as much time with them as if I was driving. So for me, it was a very good recipe to have a balance on family life and the sports and work and everything. That's, that's a wonderful commitment because you're still running. You're still getting that, that love of uh, our love of that sport. You're getting those miles in and you're getting your, your therapy and the great physical exercise and the stress relief and all that. But you're also um, allowing yourself to keep more time to, to spend with them. 
and for for fun and adventures and and sports because I know um, they're very active. Um, so one is very involved with sports and one's very involved with art. So you know, very different paths that they're uh, going down. But you know, as a mom, you got to be there. So that's that's part of your life. So you got to carve that time out and uh, get there for them. And I, I know that they have to appreciate that because I was raised by a single mom. My dad was around, um, you know, God rest, he's not with us anymore, but, you know, he wasn't uh, active in our lives. He wasn't at our sports, wasn't at our games, wasn't at school things. Um, you know, he'd just see us like at major holidays and things like that. Um, and we all had a good relationship with him, but, you know, my mom was the rock. She was the one at every single thing, every school meeting, every parent-teacher meeting, every sports thing, every event, every game, always there. And she's still, she's still rocking it at uh, just about 88 years old. So, you know, when you, when you set that kind of good example, which you're doing for your girls, they're going to appreciate it for sure. So keep doing what you're doing. Believe me. They're gonna they're gonna let you know one day how important every one of these things are that you're doing for them, and uh, they're gonna be great moms one day themselves. Yeah, they already do. I feel so lucky. They're so easy to raise. They've been so amazing since uh, we started the road. Just the three of us in 2011. Uh, we had to move pretty quickly, and uh, there's they've they've just been amazing. Never asked for anything. Just been so positive and strong and so I've never had to to really struggle much as a mom they've just made motherhood wonderful so I'm very very lucky and they always are so grateful every day for everything that they have so it's pretty cool being their mom <laughs> that's that sounds uh sounds wonderful and uh it's a good it's a beautiful thing you know because you come together and you're I think you're more close in those kinds of situations um, and they will be incredibly protective of you and they'll, they'll just think of you the way we think of my mom. So it's, it's nice. And you, um, I think in a way you, you just grow closer. So it's good stuff. And I'm sure they're thinking of you, like, how can we help mom out? How can we do this and do that? And, um, you know, that's, that's a good thing. That's a wonderful, uh, wonderful set of, uh, rules, you know, that you're, that you're living life by. And, uh, you know, just what you're putting in place, you know, those, how you're, how you're going about your day-to-day -day routines and all is, is wonderful. So keep, keep rolling. That's a good thing. And I did get to meet them for a little bit on the show. Maybe they'll pop up on, pop on a little bit later and, and we'll, we'll give them a little chance to have a shout out on the show too. <laughs> so what's, um, let's talk about how you got, in, got involved with sports as a young girl like what got you into sports, you know, even before your running days. Let's talk a little about that and how that how that all took place. Okay, so I grew up uh, with three other siblings. I was the youngest. I have a twin brother, an older sister and older brother. And my mother was very active. My father also walked to work. And so they enrolled us in every sport not even warning us. She would be like, Sarah, get in the car. And she would drive me and drop me somewhere. And all of a sudden, I'm at speed skating, training, or uh, water skiing, soccer, track and field. Uh, she had us play every sport in the books. And I had a lot of difficulties in school when I was young, just like my youngest daughter now. And so my self-esteem was very low. But I realized at a young age that I was very good in sports. So I decided to play sports. Uh, it was especially soccer, track and field, but in high school was a turning point in my life. 
Uh, I started playing handball and I was throwing the ball with my older brother in the backyard. And he said, you know what? You're a lefty. You're left-handed. If you play handball with your left hand, you're going to go very far. So when I started playing for the high school team, uh, there were, I heard there was tryouts in Montreal to try out for the national team. I was 15 years old. And so I remember one morning I walked in my mom's room. She's in her bed and she says, mommy, I'm trying out for the national handball team. This summer we're going to Europe and I'm going to make the team. And she said, Sarah, you can barely throw a ball and you're not going to make the team. There's no way you're trying out. And I think it wasn't to be mean, but it was to protect me so I wouldn't get my feelings hurt. So I used my babysitting money and I decided to buy a bus ticket from Sherbrooke to Montreal and to try out. So we were about 400 girls trying out and there was four selection camps. So every weekend they were cutting half and half and half until the fourth week, we would be just 30 girls, the official team. So the first weekend I went, I was selected for the following weekend. So I came home, I was like, mom, in your face, I made the, I made the first cut. And then the next weekend I went back and I just tried my best. I was like, there's no way I'm not going to make this team. I'm just going to show how much I want this. And so I remember the third camp, I called my brother in Montreal and in Sherbrooke. And I said, Nick, I made the, the final cut. Like there's one more cut and I'm on the team. And so I took the bus home and I saw on the kitchen table a note by my brother. And he wrote to my mom, Mom, you're wrong again. She made the she made the final cut, and I was so sad when I wrote when I read that. Then I I said to myself, I'm going to show her next weekend. I'm making this team. So I went back to Montreal and I did the final cut, and I made the national team. And I was on the press conference announcing the team that was officially going to Europe the following summer. And I was I was just so proud. From that day, I just knew whatever I put my mind to, I could do it. It was really good for my for my self esteem. That's that's such a powerful story on on so many levels. Um, I love to figure out where people get their competitive drive from. Like, where does that internal fire come from in their spirit? And it from all the different people on the show. And I know you've been listening. It comes from so many places. Um, we're all we're all internally motivated, externally motivated. And you know, some some of us are huge David Goggins fans, but we're, we're all you know, wired very differently. And we get that fire going from different places. But to me, when you, when I first heard the story from you before we came on the air, to me, it's like, if somebody tells you, you're not going to do something, you're going to say, I'll show you. And, you know, obviously your mom loves you so much and you have a great relationship with your mom. So it's not like that at all. It's just, you know, a mom or a dad can say something like that to a son or a daughter. It's not meant in any way to say like, hey, I don't love you or I don't believe in you. But, you know, she probably just figured, hey, you're going to get your feelings hurt. It's all the way over there. You're going to have to travel for this team. And sure enough, that lit the fire. Like you said, I'm going to make this goddamn team come hell or high water and I'm making it. I don't care. And you used your your babysitting money <laughs> to take the bus. That's even more awesome beyond belief because, you know, you're just like, oh, I don't need any help. I'm doing this on my own. I'm getting up there on my own. I'm making this team on my own. I'm going to show you. And what an unbelievable experience. And no question, it had to have a big impact on your self-esteem because you said you were struggling with school and some other things that you know really were 
that can have an effect on a kid at that age for sure. Because the kids who do really well in school, you know, we've all seen, you know, the teacher's pet and, you know, that you're really good in science or math or whatever the class might be, even if it's a foreign language, like the students that are doing really well, they get all that extra attention and love and it makes them feel great. That's, that's a wonderful thing about school, but there are kids who struggle in school. So sports is a wonderful way to be on a team or to be a really good individual. You could be a tennis player or something where, yes, there's a team and there's points, but for the most part, when you're out there playing tennis, you're pretty much playing by yourself unless you're playing double. So, you know, you find this opportunity to get on a national team like with all these girls trying out from all over and you come through and you you just hit this massive hurdle. And in life, you, you take a big risk at something like that and you put all the eggs in that basket and you actually do something that's going to have a big impact. So good for you. And, um, you know, obviously it had a huge impact on your self-esteem and how you felt. How did your mom feel about it after that? Like after you came home and you actually told her you made it and like, what was her, what was her whole take on that? And how did she feel? She was super proud. I think, uh, and she even showed up at the press conference. I think she realized that that weekend that I was going to make the team. So she surprised me in Montreal. So when they announced the, the names of the players that were going to Italy the following summer, when they announced my name, Sarah Lachan from Sherbrooke, I saw her. So I know she was very proud of me. Oh, but, but that's great. So um, after that, you know, and then she actually, she came there and she was there. So she heard the announcement and all of it. So it wasn't like she was hearing it secondhand or thirdhand. She was actually there and got to be there, part of the announcement thing. And what a what a big deal. I mean, in the US, we don't even have travel teams for a sport like that, but obviously every country has their own unique sports. But what a cool, what a cool opportunity. So tell us a little bit about what countries you got to play in, you know, what that experience was like. So it was a big struggle because I was very good at track and field in high school and, and soccer too. So it was very hard to ch- to choose which sport I wanted to do. But that you, traveling to Europe was definitely why I chose handball. And so we competed in uh, in Italy mainly. We went to France and Italy and Normandy. We went to Budapest. We we traveled all over Europe. We would spend a whole month traveling in the bus, thirty girls. It was pretty intense, but it was an amazing experience. But the tournament that we did was in Italy, and it was a, like a mini Olympic. It was uh, 50 countries in Teramo, Italy, and it was just an amazing, like with the parades and everything, it was just an amazing experience. I went two summers in a row, and it was just amazing. Yeah. So I, um, I know you have a huge love of travel. But we didn't get to that part of the story yet. So what I want to know is, is that where the love of travel started to first become apparent to you? Or did you travel much when you were a young girl before that? Because you're already, you're a young girl at this point. Is that where you first realized like how much you enjoyed the whole adventures of travel and being on the road, being in a bus, seeing other countries? Yeah, I think that the first time I heard that I could have an opportunity to travel, I jumped on it. I didn't know I had it in me, but I just realized as I went, I was like, I can't believe I'm going to Europe. And it was just amazing. I've always loved traveling, but I've traveled so much now that I'm okay with staying home and discovering my home and how beautiful Quebec is. And now I've toned it down a lot, but yeah, I've always had that love from a very young age. 
That's that's so great. And to be able to travel at that age is just it's so unbelievable because we're not jaded by any expectations at all. We we don't have any preconceived ideas of what Italy might be like or Greece or anywhere else. We're just going there with these eyes that are just so wide open, like triple size saucers, like, oh wow, this is what it's like in Tokyo, or this is what it's like in Australia. And, you know, people's accents are so different and the food is different. And you know, we just take it in at a very different level when we're that young. As we get a little older in life, I think we're we're so much more self-aware of, you know, we go to places and we expect it to be a certain way. We're not like that when we're younger. We're not like that at all. We're just willing to just go there and be like, okay, this is how it is. Let's Absolutely. let's go. We also experience more the, the we experience the culture more when we're young. When we're older, we want to see the places to see and the places to be. But when we're young, we actually appreciate the accent and the food and the sceneries. I find that we're in the moment more. I remember Italy when I was 15. It feels like it was yesterday. I still remember the taste of the food and the sounds of the women telling us we were too skinny. And I just remember so vividly this trip to Italy a lot more than trips that I've done recently. Yeah. I think that's that's what travel is, right? So, and the people in life who have that uh, wanderlust and they just enjoy it. And um, I'm a big foodie, so food and wine and adventures and travel—that's that's what it's all about. And we we also share this crazy love of running. There's no greater place. There's no greater way to see a country in the world than to be to do it on foot. Um, and even if you don't want to run, hike, you know, rent a mountain bike, you know, walk slowly. You know, see the churches, see the villages, see the architecture. But on a run, you can just go, and you, you don't even know where you're going to go. I don't, I don't worry about GPS. I don't worry about anything. I'm just going to go. And obviously, it's different as a man. We don't have to worry about safety as much as women do, and they do need to worry about it. It's a real life thing um, to be out there. You got to make sure you're safe and nobody's following you. God forbid. Um, but what a what a super cool adventure for you that got you going on the travel side. So that was, you know, your first experience with that. And how did you, you said you also did track and field. So did you decide then, you know, after having this national experience with the team, like, Hey, like running is more for me or, or when did running really, you know, come into play? So actually uh, handball, the, my handball experience was a lot harder than I anticipated because we had a coach uh, that was very abusive. Uh, from from the the very beginning, it was there's so many stories I could tell you, but uh, he finally got fired two years later for stuff that he did to us, and so he was very abusive physically and verbally and on so many levels. And at the beginning, I thought it was normal. I thought that being on an elite team, you just do what the coach tells you, and whatever he says or does, it's it's okay. And so we were basically brainwashed. It was. A very stressful experience in the long run. And I remember every weekend I would drive to Montreal to my training camps with the team. And at one point, I just didn't want to go anymore. Like I would show up late and later and I would hope that training was canceled because it was I was very scared of the coach and he was very scary on the trips as well. And so two years later, when he got uh, fired, I quit sports altogether. I was 17 and I was done with sports I was done with people telling me how to train and how to sleep and how to eat and that's when I just decided to travel the world and I just traveled across Canada and I traveled 
to Australia and Africa and Europe. I just traveled for many years and I totally lost my fitness. So running came back much later when I had my kids and I decided to get my life back on track. And I've been running for uh, since Gloria was two. So for 10 years, I've been running quite a bit. Wow. Well, let's, let's just go back. So the, a bad experience, obviously, with a coach like that. And it's a national team. So um, we have issues like that. Every country does. Um, in our country, I we hear a little bit more like gymnastics teams, swimming teams, like different teams. Sometimes there's extreme pressure put on um, younger girls to lose weight, to keep their weight down, particularly in sports like gymnastics or swimming where it can make a difference or, or certainly running, you know, track and field as well. Um, but that's, that's unfortunate. But at the same time, sometimes a hard experience like that, if you come out of it, okay. Um, and you, you sometimes can be stronger for it as long as God forbid, there's like no really bad abuse. Like you said, you know, he was physically abusive too. I mean, hopefully, you know, no one was like really hurt or injured or anything. And thank God he was ultimately fired and and cut loose. So he wasn't going to be having a negative impact on any other girls because it's sad that people can get into these positions at a national level on top of it and be able to have such power and influence. But it does happen. And we see it all the time at Olympic level uh, training facilities where, you know, you're pulling together the best athletes and and trying to put forth the best team on a national level or international level, like, like he was, you know, doing with you all. And, you know, thank God you came out of the experience and that you were okay. So you were burned out and you didn't want to be told what to do for a while. That's all okay. I mean, you know, that's a, a really, if anything, a very healthy reaction for you to be like, hey, I'm getting off the bus here. <laughs> I'm literally like stepping off this merry-go-round. This is not what I need. And, you know, you you transitioned out of there. So thankfully, thankfully you made it out of there. Absolutely. So I came back to running when I felt ready and when I, I did it for myself and I just wanted to do something that I loved and so when Gloria was two years old, it was 10 years ago, and I started running, and I never stopped since. I've been running quite a bit since. Well, that's um, that's, so it's been with you a long time, um, but I know before we get into your actual running, we've got some amazing stories uh, that I know that have and things that have happened to you in your life um, while traveling, while experiencing the world. And I want to get into get into a couple of those. So I know you had told me that you hitchhiked across Canada, which that's pretty cool because Canada is pretty big. That's not a small place to hitchhike across, by the way. That's like pretty big deal. And um, you know, when I grew up, yeah, we we did hitchhike. That was a much more uh, common thing. I don't know that it still happens very much at all. Um, I think people are a lot more uh, conscious of safety and whatnot. And you know, the crazy things that can happen in our world today. But I mean, the fact that you hitchhiked across Canada, I mean, oh my God, that's, that's wild. But I definitely, it's, it's, you're a girl after my heart. Cause I love people that have an adventurous spirit, but thank God you made it safely. And I know you did that. And then you, um, I know you also moved to Australia and you got involved with doing some really interesting things down there. So tell, tell me a little bit about that. So, uh, I studied special care counseling. I think it's special education. Uh, and I worked in a school in uh, in Montreal with autistic children. And I was asked to go to Australia to help open a school and take care of a young uh, boy uh, who was two years old, freshly diagnosed, and this family needed help at home. 
to take care of him and to work on an intervention plan. So I moved to Australia when I was done with college and I lived there for a year and I happened to see my sister because my sister was living uh, in Adelaide. I was in Sydney and so we got to reunite and spend some time together in Australia. So I actually also played handball in Australia for uh, New South Wales and was asked to play in the Olympics for Sydney when the uh, Olympics were in Australia. But uh, I had an itch to travel some more to Africa, so I decided to go and hitchhike in Africa after after my year in Australia. <laughs> wow. So you, you got a chance to meet up with your sister. Super cool. You were doing stuff with aut- autistic children, autistic right? Children, which is yeah. which is awesome. Um, what an experience for you there. And then you decide you're you're heading over you're heading over to South Africa. This is this is where things really get interesting. So how did you get how did you get from Australia to South Africa? I know you didn't hitchhike. No, so I decided <laughs> to get a flight. It was actually eleven hundred dollars. It would land from Sydney to South Africa, and it gave me six months to make my way to Kenya. So I had no plans. I lived on about two bucks US a day, and I had six months to bring myself up to Kenya. And so we were just traveling. I wanted to work with autistic children in Africa. And so I remember one specific day I was in a Harare in Zimbabwe and I asked the maid where I live, where I could find a family that might need help. And she sent me to this poorest village called Mbari in Zimbabwe. And uh, so I met this family with a 10 year old who was severely autistic. And they said, you know, don't even bother. He's He hasn't had interaction with humans for a long time. He just plays with a dog with a piece of grass. And that's what he does all day. So I spent the day with him. I started playing with grass with him. And so I was just doing whatever he was doing. And then I, I said to him, I'm going in your room to play. I had brought like rice and shaving cream. And so I went in his room, waited. 20 minutes later, he showed up. And I was just playing with my shaving cream and he started doing imitating me. But I kept turning his back to tell him, I don't want to play with you. I'm doing my own stuff. So we ended up playing two hours together in his room. And then uh, I asked his mom, go put, go turn the TV on. And so she went and turned on the TV. And I told the little boy, I said, you know what, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm going to watch TV. So I went and watched TV in the living room. And he came out of this room and he sat on my lap and we just watched TV together. And so the mom started crying. She called her husband and she's like, we've never seen that behavior in our child. So it was basically, I was in Africa, just improvising, just, you know, doing what I felt like doing. I was so young. I was 18 years old and I just wanted to, to do my part, travel, help families if I could, but it was nothing organized at all. Unbelievable. Adventure, 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 no plan, winging it. Gotta love it. Um, and you know the the thing is with um, autistic kids, sometimes um, an animal animal therapy helps, but sometimes it's it's just there's a connection, and you never know how that connection can come to be, and you know somehow you you two connected, and that ha- and you know there was something there, and you know that's the beauty of of um, that kind of a story, and it just it's wonderful to see when you know, something can actually happen in a positive, a positive way. So if he's only doing one thing or she's only doing one thing, and then you can add a few more things for them to do and get them stimulated in doing other things. That's just, that's wonderful. And I had to feel incredibly 
awesome. And obviously the family was very appreciative of that. Yeah, it was a nice experience, which brings me then to what you probably wanted me to mention. Uh, when I was in Zimbabwe, I was living uh, with a Canadian family and they had to go back to Canada for a couple of weeks. And so I was told to watch the house and stay with the maid. So I told the maid not to work for the following two weeks that I was going to do my dishes, do the laundry, and her job was to watch movies with me. <laughs> so, we hung out, so we hung out together. And then she went back home for a little bit. And then I got malaria. I was alone in the house. And all I remember was hallucinations and fever. And I was hearing cellos and uh, helicopters. And I was wondering what, what was going on. And I tried to call back home in Canada, tell my mom I wasn't feeling good. And I just couldn't get in touch with her. And I fell in a coma. And so the maid was like, I usually see Sarah every day. She usually goes out in the pool or in the yard. So she came in and she found me on the floor and I woke up two weeks later. I don't know where I was, who did what with my body, but I woke up two weeks later and was told that I was very lucky to be alive. And so my twin brother was in Thailand at the moment and at the, at the same time. And he kept calling my mom saying, there's something wrong with Sarah. Cause we were traveling in, in days where internet didn't exist yet. So we couldn't really email each other, you know, so he called my mom and he's like, there's something wrong with Sarah. I just feel it. I feel it. And when I finally came back to health, I called my brother, told him the story. And he's like, I just knew it. I just knew you're not well. So that was my close to death experience in Africa. <laughs> that That's remarkable. Um, we hear all the time about twin connections and how one can feel what the other could feel or you'll, you, you watch... Um, or read books like crime stories of uh, violence being done to one or the other and the other twin saying, no, she's still alive or he's still alive or no, he knew. So somehow he knew and that's unbelievable. And yeah, I mean, we live in such a remarkably different world these days where we can literally reach anybody via FaceTime and texting and Zoom and Skype. And we're we're doing this via Zoom right now and we can see each other and we're audio recording and we're going to put it on a podcast, but you know, this, it's a different world back then. There's no, there's no way you had to go to a payphone or a landline. And, you know, if it, we're talking about different time zones, it's like, you can just call Canada from Africa and it's going to be okay. So it's, it's just absolutely the grace of God that she found you. And like you said, you're not going to remember any of the details. Whoever in that village, whatever medical facility they got you to, if it was a hospital or just a local doctor, which is probably more likely because things are so remote there, you know, thank God they were able to get you treated and you were okay because it's, it's, it's amazing. Unbelievable. Yeah. What a story. I'm lucky. I'm very lucky. But when I saw that, that made again, when I came back, it was such a, I was so happy to see her like, she, she, we just gave each other the biggest hug in the world. It was just, I was just so grateful. She literally saved my life. She was very caring. So she did, she did save your life. Um, it's, um, it's absolutely amazing. And this would be the point if I didn't already know that I would be telling you like, oh my God, you need to write a book. You need to write your life story, except you already did write a book and that's about a totally different story. But honestly, you need to do a completely other book, which has all of it. Your handball story, the national team, the coach, um, your, your experience hitchhiking across Canada. 
um, you know, with your sister and doing things like that, but obviously getting malaria, all of that. But that might be a good point for you to tell your other even more amazing story of, you know, what your experience was and how you wrote a book and all that other stuff. Cause I think that would be pretty, pretty amazing to share. Yeah. So, uh, I was with my, uh, daughter's, uh, father for 16 years. And so we had Naomi, my first daughter's very easy pregnancy. I worked as a nurse till the end. Uh, and after that, I, I was pregnant with twins and I was so happy because I'm a twin and, so the grandmothers were already sewing for two and it was just an amazing experience. But I started having complications uh, at week 14. I was contracting a lot. I was working very hard at work at, in the ICU and emergency. And so I kept telling my doctor there's something wrong. And he's like, oh, it's normal with twins you contract more. And basically at week 20, I went into labor at work. So I had to give birth to the twin boys. Um, at work and it was a very traumatic experience because um, I gave birth to them and they were alive in my hands and I was very sad, two boys. Uh, and I was given a photocopy to go back home with of why miscarriage happens. It was like a photocopy of a photocopy that you can barely read that says one in fourth pregnancies and miscarriage. And I was like, that's the support I'm getting going home. Like the support in the hospital was absolutely amazing. But once you get home to an empty baby room, to breast milk that's coming out, to all these things, it's where you get very sad and where everything sinks in. So um, I came up with a book. And because a lot of people were asking me, how far along were you? And I was like, what does it matter how far along I am? I lost a dream. I lost children that I was expecting. So whether I was at five weeks or 30 weeks, it doesn't matter. I'm, I'm sad right now. And sadness can't be counted. You can't, you can't be super sad or a little bit sad. You're sad. And so I came up with a book where I wanted to represent every week of pregnancy. So I sent out a call through the internet and I asked every family who lost children to send me a story of that would represent every week that a baby was lost from week five to 42. And so it took me a year. I had a friend down in who helped me and we worked on this book for a whole year. We wrote a chapter on how to cope with mourning and what to do with your baby, take pictures, give your baby a name. And we finally uh, got it out in 2011 and we raised a lot of money uh, so we could be able to give that book to every family that has a miscarriage or loses a pregnancy in our hospital. So we've been giving it for over 10 years and we also presented it in Geneva and, and Europe uh, to, to show it around basically. And it, that's been for me a very, a very profound healing process writing this book. So it's not a very fun subject, but it was a very healing subject. That is so powerful. Um, to experience that, A, you're a twin yourself. Mm -hmm. So you're pregnant with twins. Um, all of that joy and the, just the thought of what that's going to be like to be a mom of twins yourself when you are a twin. And then, as you said, the grandparents getting ready, doing all those things. Um, it's just, there's so much in there. Um, but I think what really stuck me or stuck with me, with the words that you said are when you went home and you got the photocopied piece of paper, most people, you know, they're dealing with this enormous emotion, um, 
and like what do you do with that emotion um people can become extremely depressed and not for a short period of time sometimes they just can't even snap out of it sometimes the marriages are ruined um and then sometimes the people will never want to marry anyone else that that has that profound an impact on them you know moving forward you chose to do something for the good of many other people um obviously to deal with your own grief because you needed to deal with it and you found a way to deal with it by not just writing about yourself um i think that's pretty amazing a lot of people might have just chose to write about what it was like for you and you know how how that was going to affect your own family and you personally and um you know what that loss was like what that experience was like for you but you went out there and connected with all these other people out there from like you said week 5 to week 42 so the experiences i guarantee you that the grief was every bit as real for somebody at week 5 that it was mm-hmm. for 42 am i right absolutely absolutely i even made a chapter for in vitro patients who try to even get pregnant and and it fails and that's just as hard it's it's just as painful so i basically wanted to give a voice to all those families like it doesn't matter how far along or if you even got pregnant but when you have a dream of being a parent and it doesn't work it can be quite devastating yeah well what a great job um i'll make sure um when I, we talk it over with dave my producer will will link um to your book in english and français because we have it <laughs> we have it both ways so we'll we'll put a link there because um i i would be really surprised if there isn't a mom out there somewhere who's a runner who won't listen to one of our shows at some point who probably didn't have a miscarriage somewhere along the way um and if not maybe she knows of somebody if it it didn't happen to her personally maybe a family member or or a friend or a colleague at work and i just think it's a wonderful thing that you've done and so to share that and and share the opportunity for somebody to maybe read about that might help them with the healing process so good job sarah thank you ron <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean I was going to say I mean go write a book but you already wrote one so you're experienced so we're I, ready. I love writing. I re- I I write a blog and I just write all the time. I just love writing and I sometimes send it to the newspaper to our local newspaper. I just love writing. I love writing about human experience and just raw feelings and I just love writing. So maybe one day I'll write a book. <laughs> you sh- you should. and um, you know i can besides your adventures you already have an adventure story of all of these things and nearly dying with malaria and then obviously you know your your baby's not coming through you know your twins losing your twins but so many other things i mean the adventure side of uh you know the handball and and the hitchhiking but or even just journaling i think is very healthy way um you came home and you talked about how profound that easter was with uh 12 people passing and you know what that experience was like for you but you could write about what the covid experience was like i mean it's it's been you know you know 3 months of of just unbelievable highs and lows and way more lows obviously because it's just not the kind of thing that we're winning at right we don't have a vaccine we don't we can't come back and say well i had 100 patients and they're all discharged and they're all healthy that's that's just not what's happening um and if somebody is younger and they get it you know they're probably going to be okay if their immune system is compromised they'll probably be okay but anybody who has you know any sort of underlying you know immuno issues it's it's a tough battle so 
It is. It is. Yeah. But um, so you're running. Let's talk a little bit more about your running today. Because um, that, uh, you know, be, you know, getting out of shape, you had talked a little about that, getting out of shape and your travels and all these adventures and whatever. I think you would even mention that you had taken up smoking at some point. Yeah, so you, I, I, I was a rebel. Yeah, it's it's okay. It's not something I'm proud of. It's okay. One of, one of my guests on the show, Allie, is a, a low three-hour marathoner from New Jersey. I had her on the show and you know, she was a really good athlete in high school and started smoking in college and partying and just, you know, gained weight through her pregnancies and just wasn't, wasn't really happy with, you know, how she was feeling and just all of it. And just said, I'm going to, I'm going to start working on this. And, you know, first it was just like going to the gym and walking and doing different things, but she found running because she, you know, she ran in high school, but she came back to running is what we talked about and was, was with a group, you know, a local mom's group that got together and started running and, and she just keeps killing it, you know, and you are doing some great stuff. You've made some huge progress on your running. And of course we got to give a shout out to, you know, O'Leary racing and, and team ORT because, you know, you are a proud member of uh O'Leary racing team as am I. So shout out to them. So is Brendan your coach or Casey? Who's, who's coaching you? Brendan is my coach. Brendan. And when did you start working with Brendan? Uh, was not long ago. It was for the program for the Boston Marathon this year. So I think it was in December that I got in touch with him. And so I, I, I had been looking for coaches before, but I needed a coach that would understand my schedule, my work schedule and my run commute and someone that could integrate the trainings, uh, just running to work. Cause I don't want to be away with, from my children. I, I don't want the training to take up their time. So Brennan was so positive about it. As, as soon as I mentioned him my needs, he's like, no problem, Sarah, we'll make it work. Like he was just amazing, so supportive. So he's like the perfect coach for me. And that, that's, so, that's so important. Um, there's, there's just a multitude of really good running coaches out there, individually and group coaches. And um, they've got platforms and training systems that work. Um, and w you don't have to be running the marathon. You could want to be a really good miler or run a fast 5k or, um, you know, be focused on other distances. But I think the biggest thing that you need to look for in a coach is somebody who's going to be able to roll up their sleeves and make the program work for you, because it's not important. You know, honestly, we're not hiring them to coach 62 people or 162. You're hiring them to coach you. And, you know, there's got to be that connection there. And if you feel that connection and you know that he's willing to adapt on the fly and work with these parameters you have, which you should be commended for, you know, there's certain people who they can run on their lunch hour only, or they have to run at five o'clock in the morning. And I have such respect for people that have to do it in like one window. I am not a morning person, man. Do not be trying to tell me to do these crazy runs at like before sunrise because it's just not going to happen, you know, unless there's going to be a big group of us and we're all going to be someplace fun, you know, then, you know, maybe if we go down to Guatemala and we hang out at Carlos's compound, <laughs> you know, if we go down there for a little Guatemala trip, then maybe you might be able to catch me up for a sunrise run and we'll go run up to the top of the volcano because um, we have all talked about heading down there, but yeah, that's that's a big part of coaching. And you know, right now with Boston being canceled and so many races being canceled, you know, what what are you trying to focus on yourself in your own running to just stay in the right state of mind? 
Well, to me, running is not really about goals or about the marathon. I keep the marathons to give me a sense of training to keep the motivation there. But I'm I'm really doing it to be a model for my children. Uh, being a single mom and working long hours at work, I always promise myself to show the kids that I'm not a victim single mom. I'm a single mom that's living it up, that's doing her passion, and that can handle motherhood and that can handle everything else. And I want them to remember that I had a life, that I wasn't just, you know, kids in school and work. And I want them to see that everything is possible. You can just fit it in and just organize yourself so you can do stuff that you love. And I also wanted to run because I tell them to run to play outside a lot. So I can't tell my kids to play outside if I'm not playing outside. So for me, running has always been about being an example, about staying in shape, about doing what I want to do. And actually, when Boston was canceled, I wasn't disappointed because it's not going to stop me from doing what I love. And it's not going to stop the intensity of what I do. And I just know that Boston will come up again, probably in April next year. And when it just got canceled last week, I wasn't disappointed because it's not going to change anything about what I do. And so my goal is just to keep running. I do have a competitive side to, to myself. I like to be as strong as I can. So I do the programs and try to be fast. And I have improved a lot over the last few years. But yeah, I just want to keep it fun. No pressure. <laughs> That's that's a great attitude. Um, I think one of the things that I struggle with is just so many people. It just seems like every other post is like, "Oh no, this race is canceled. What am I going to do?" And I'm just like, "Oh my god, get over yourself!" Like, I mean, you know, I know that might sound hypocritical because I got to run all six majors last year. But you know what? You don't think I was disappointed when Tokyo canceled two days before I was getting on the plane? Yeah, I was really disappointed. I wanted to go there. But you know what I wanted to go there for almost as much as fun as the run is to explore Tokyo and go see all the amazing temples and and see these incredible villages and go back to Kyoto and ride the bullet train. I mean, to me, the run and the race and all of it is so amazing, but it's really the camaraderie and the friendships I've developed with people from all around the world. I organize those shakeout runs. I put as much uh, energy and thought into where are we going to go run and have some fun? And then where are we going to eat dinner? Where's our big meal going to be? Where are we going to go out and drink and have some food and, and have some laughs and have some have some fun um, and make sure that that happens. And um, I think that that is just the part that I'm enjoying like more now than ever. So sure, I'm I'm as disappointed that Boston's canceled or whatever, but I think if you just look at what's really happening, how can you expect anything else? Of course it's going to be canceled. All of these races are going to be canceled. We're not going to run a major marathon with 40 or 50,000 people when we don't have a vaccine. It's not going to happen. Um it's not safe. You know, the communities, the towns that we're going to run through are not going to want it to happen and volunteers are not going to come out and put water and Gatorade on the table and be inches away from people and have spit flying around and everything else. I mean, you're in the healthcare business. So am I. It's not going to happen. And your perspective is so refreshing because you can still love running every bit as much. I talk about it all the time. I say, run for the love of the game. Run for the love of the game. You know what that means? It means that in the worst day you're ever having, in the most stressful moments of your life, somebody passes away, a friend is sick, somebody loses a job, you feel like crap. In those worst moments of the day, 
You can put your shoes on and you could change everything by going out for a run. Because in that run at some point, I'm not saying it's magic every time. You're not going to have a perfect sunset or the moon, or you're not going to have the right weather. We could have a 2018 Boston day where the wind is pelting down. The wind is blasting in our face 35 miles an hour and the rain's coming. But you know what? When you get out there, all of your problems shrink, okay? And our brains can go into this incredible have this ability to think clearly, the most clearly ever, and we can problem solve, and we can think about something in the future, or we can absolutely think about nothing. And we can just tune it all out and say, I'm going to listen to my own heartbeat, I'm going to listen to my own breathing, or I'm going to just look at the water as I ride, run by, and you're running to work. So you're clearing your own head, you know, before you get to work and have to deal with patients. And how sick they might be or you know the stress of the day so you know kudos to you for how you're how you're approaching that yeah i'm lucky i'm very lucky to live near work <laughs> yes yeah. yes and you you know getting 6 you know 15 16k a day in and running you know back and forth on those work days so that's uh you know it's 10 miles a day you know almost 10 miles a day good for you that's a lot of <laughs> miles and even if you're just going super slowly it's also a great way. You're, so you're running there and you're running home. So, you know, like you're running there before the day starts and, you know, whatever. But then after the day is over again, a good day, we have good days, you have mediocre days, you have bad days, but you go home, you know, you're going to see your girls and then you got to have a little dinner together, you hang out and it's a beautiful thing. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so... Man, you have lived an interesting life, I have to say. Some of the best stories and most wild experiences of anybody I have ever met. And I am so appreciative of you sharing those stories with us and with the Run Chats listeners. I think people are going to be completely amazed and totally inspired by what you're doing. Um, anything else big or major you're thinking about that you want to share with anybody that we haven't gotten to to this point? Well, I'm going to send a message to the single moms raising kids alone. Um, it's a special thing, experience that I, I had with the, my daughters. I remember the day that I told them that we had to move and we had to leave pretty quickly. And I remember that day so vividly. And I told them in three days, we're moving out and we're separating from Papa. And so I remember they started crying and I was trying to reassure them. And I made a promise to them that day. I looked at them both in the eyes and I promised them that everything would be okay. And I told them to please believe me that everything would be okay. And when I asked them, they said, we believe you, mom. So we moved. And so for a few weeks, they did a lot of drawings with the, the smile upside down. And they would come home from daycare with sad faces. And then the faces started turning around. And I remember one night when the... Naomi was diagnosed with a celiac disease. One night I came back from work. It was this huge snowstorm and I could barely drive to school to pick the girls up. I couldn't see anything outside. I tried to call the school to tell them that school, that my, that I was going to be late. A car smashed into my car and I started crying in my car saying, my life is just so hard right now, raising two young girls alone, having to cook gluten-free food working 24-hour shifts. And I finally made it to the school, drove home, shoveled my driveway as fast as you could 
ever imagine a human being shoveling a driveway at 7 p.m., haven't done homework, haven't done baths. And I'm trying to find out what to make for dinner and gluten is all over my kitchen. And I was like, what am I going to do? And all of a sudden I hear a liquid fall on the ground in the kitchen. And I see this two liter carton of milk just spilling under the fridge. And my girl's looking guilty saying like, I'm sorry, you know. And when I saw that milk just spill under the fridge, I just lost it. I lost it. I just, I was beyond overwhelmed. And I told my daughters politely, to please go to the living room. And I started crying in the kitchen and I was on my knees and I was like, I'll never be able to raise those two girls alone. I'm never going to make it. And I'm trying to wipe the milk on the floor. And then my daughters came back and they said, mom, there's a promise we'd like to make to you and you have to trust us. And I was like, what's your promise? And they said, we promise you that everything will be okay. Because a, a wise person made us this promise one time, and she was right. And so we're making this promise to you. And so we all started crying, and they were right. Because after that, everything worked out. And you just have to stay strong and know that things always do work out, even in hard moments. So that's my message to single moms. <laughs> oh, that's such a beautiful story. You've heard me cry in the show before, so you're probably going to make me cry right now. I'm such a softy, and I have such a um, unbelievable warm spot for single moms. You know, being raised by one, so that's a beautiful story. Um, and obviously, um, every mom out there that's in that spot, or even a single dad that might be out there in that spot, because I don't ever want to lose sight of the fact that there are single dads raising children too, because they. Um, they're caregivers and they give just as much love as the moms do. But anybody who's out there in that kind of spot alone, I hope you hear Sarah's words and I hope you realize that there are going to be a lot of bad days too. And you know, by her sharing what was going to take place with her and her girls when they had to leave and they had to make that journey alone, you know, and and she reassured them they weren't probably believing it at that point. But at some point, the the smiles turned from frowns to, you know, the right direction to smiles. I mean, they went from frowns to back to smiles. And, you know, when she needed them the most at that moment, when we crack and we all crack, just like that nurse who walked out of there that day and wrote the names down on the paper towels, it's okay. We're all human, man. We all have a limit that we can take. Um, it's important to be around people that love you and to give that love back. Um, you know, with all your heart, because your girls knew at that moment that they needed, they needed to be there for mom. So good job. Yeah. Good job by them. And thank you for sharing that story. It's a beautiful story. <laughs> I have to say an awesome, awesome uh, episode. We had some technical issues, but hopefully no one will know about that because my <laughs> producer <laughs> will hopefully solve the different things that were going on. But uh, God bless. Thank you so much for coming on, uh, Sarah. It's been really fun getting to know you better, getting to talk to you, getting to see you on the Zoom screen. And uh, it was really, really a fun time. And I'm sure a lot of people are going to be inspired by hearing your story for sure. Thank you so much for having me. I'm sorry I didn't talk about running all that much, but uh, I do love running and I love your show. And whenever I see one of your shows come up and I know that it's going to take me to work or back home, I get so happy. So please keep them coming. Uh, well, thank you so much for that. It's so kind of you to say. I think that what makes our show unique is that running is a part of the story, but it's the people um, that really are the story. 
and what they do in their lives or with their lives is is the most important part of the story. Mm -hmm. Running makes us healthy, makes us happy, and fills us out and makes us a whole, you know, complete human being, a whole parent, a whole brother, a mom, a dad, whatever. Um, and we wouldn't be anywhere near as good as ourselves if we didn't have it in our lives. And everybody knows you could never have done all these amazing things in your life if if running wasn't a big part of it. And you certainly you certainly shared plenty, you know, running back and forth to work every day and sacrificing, you know, not wanting to sacrifice in your personal time with your girls. So so good for you on that. So how do we close out? We always say, peace out, everyone. And always remember to stay in the fight. fight. <laughs> Yay. Yay. <laughs> Ale, Sarah, Ale, you are amazing, my friend. What an example you're setting for your girls. I was completely captivated listening to your adventures and stories traveling around the world. You're selfless, you care for others, and you're making an impact every day. So God bless, my friend. Keep doing what you're doing. It's wonderful, and I have no doubt your story is going to inspire many. You wanted me to give a shout-out to your local Rigaud gang. I'm sure that pronunciation is butchered, by the way. Sorry, my French sucks. To David, Chantel, Nick, and Stephanie, your local running gang. I know they have an impact working together as a group on your running, and you guys all enjoy each other's company. So shout out to all of them up there, up in Sherbrooke, Quebec. Someday I'll come up and join you all for a run. So keep working together, keep getting faster and having fun and sharing those miles together. It's all good stuff. And Sarah, I wanted to say that the quote that I could not remember was from the great coach, Jim Valvano, who sadly died of cancer too young. And he said that, any day in life that we should do these three things, laugh, think, and have our emotions move us to tears, whether they're happy, joyful, or sad. That was what I couldn't think of. And any podcast where I have a guest on that moves me to tears is going to be one that's extra special to me. So thank you for sharing that beautiful story with your girls at the end. It definitely made me cry. Um, anyway, it was really wonderful sitting down with you and listening to your experiences and hearing about the impact that you're having in life. And I'm just proud of you and you're doing wonderful things and just wanna encourage you to just keep getting after it because you are really making an impact, my friend. So anyone listening who has moved as I was and is inspired by Sarah's story, please take a moment to write a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you download your shows from. Share it with your friends on Instagram or Facebook. I'm sure in these times that we're living in, it would really help for somebody to hear such an inspiring story as Sarah's. So I just want to say to everybody, we are taking on some amazingly important challenges in the world. There could be nothing more important than tackling and fighting and ending racism once and for all. And I'm proud to see that people have taken such a strong stance and are writing letters, they're protesting, they are making a difference and there's so much more work to be done, but let's keep after it because this is a super important fight and one that we have to get right after hundreds of years of failure on this key issue. So God bless to you all. Keep lacing them up 
keep getting out there and running. And we're going to keep sharing inspiring stories because we need to balance out the heaviness of everything with COVID and the fight against racism with some inspiring, inspirational stories. So we're going to try to continue to share them and keep moving forward towards the greater good. And just want to say to everybody, thank you all for listening. And I appreciate anyone who is listening and part of the show and who's taken the time to take to write a review and share some good thoughts on our guests and their stories. So God bless to you all. Keep lacing them up. Keep getting out that door. And I'm just going to say peace out. And always remember to stay in the fight. <laughs>